for the reading of scripture. The first scripture comes from Genesis 1, 1 through 10, and 27. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And from Genesis 6, 9 to 14, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy them, both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. You may be seated. Why write a book on Genesis? Well, you know, in the 20th century particularly, Genesis became a lightning rod issue because of uh, the intersection of science and history, and as those things began to emerge and began to what seemingly uh, was contradict and conflict with what the Bible was saying, it really raised two important questions that we've been wrestling with ever since, and that is, what is the Bible, and what do we do with it? And so we wanted to write a book really to dive into those questions of what is the Bible, and what do we do with it, and Genesis was a great place to start. Uh, the week after Easter is usually the lowest attended day of the year. Do you know that? It's like national don't go to church day, the week after Easter. But you're all here. I mean, this is more than I expected. Thanks for being here. We've got some new folks. Love meeting you. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I'd love to meet you after, after the service out there by the coffee bar. And um, if you're new, uh, if you would text welcome, text the word welcome to this number, 480-530-7234. You'll get a link. You just click that link. It's a digital connect card. You have your name, email address, phone number. It'll put you on our email list. Um, and you'll get information about the church. Um, so we want to welcome you today. And let's be honest, how many of us considered just staying out and maybe trying out the bounce houses? You? I thought about it. Hey, I could see adults out there like going through the legal consequences. Like what happens if I land on a kid or what, you know. But you came in, so thank you for, for being here. They're going to have a great time during the service. 
Um, we have face painting balloons. They're going to get some popsicles out there, and they're in no hur- uh, hurry for this service to end this morning. But uh, again, welcome. Uh, this is week one of our new series, Genesis for Normal People in the Beginning. And we're taking a look at the, the full book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. And so if you want to start in the beginning, the beginning is a great place to start. And, and it's the first of uh, five books that our Jewish friends call the Torah. It's also called the Pentateuch. And uh, these books are the foundation for our faith. And, and really, Genesis lays the foundation. If you're going to pour a concrete slab for a new house in Chandler, that's Genesis. It's the foundation for our faith. And so we're going to start there. And... Um, uh, we're, we're not just talking about heady issues like evolution and science and creation and things like that, but we're also talking about real-life, everyday issues because that's in Genesis too. So issues like marriage, uh, issues like uh, sibling rivalry and, and not getting along with people in your family. Aren't, aren't you surprised there are some people that don't get along with everybody in their family? Isn't that a shock? Right? But Genesis yeah, discusses that. Uh, in several times, actually, Genesis talks about passing things down to your family and parenting and how to deal with your own parents, how to relate to them, maybe as they age or things you learn from them that are good or bad. Well, Genesis talks about that, too. And Genesis talks about guidance. If you're looking for guidance in your life, God, what do I do? What, what decision do I make? And how, you know, how do I, I want to grow and be a better person? Well, Genesis is all about that, too. So we're going to cover all those bases in this series. Um, but today, we're starting in Genesis chapter 1, and we're talking about the relationship of faith and science. Yes, evolution and creation. But we're also talking about something uh, that is, I would say, more important to our faith than that. We're going to take a look at Genesis 1 and its original context and, and, and think about what does it really, what did it mean then, but what does it mean for you and me now? Beyond just some heady thing like faith and science, what does Genesis 1 really mean for you and me now? So, uh, there is, uh, it's probably not a secret to you, there is a relationship, or a, um, how, to, how to put it, there is a oftentimes adversarial relationship between faith and science, or the Bible and science. Um, there are, are folks who believe that, you know, if you're a good Christian, then you can't really support modern science. Or if you believe in modern science, you can't really be a good Christian. Do you remember that scene in Napoleon Dynamite? Or no, uh, not Napoleon Nacho Libre. Jack Black, right? And he, and he has the guy, his partner, and he asks him if he has ever been baptized. And what does the guy say? He's like, I've never been baptized. He's like, I believe in science. And then Nacho sneaks behind him and dunks his head in the bucket. You guys remember that scene? Right? So there's this idea that if I, if I believe in science, then I can't somehow believe in God. And there's some pictures I have here that show that. Um, you, you guys know the uh, Darwin decal you put on the car, Right? So the ichthus, a fish, was a symbol for Jesus in the ancient world because of the, the ichthus stood for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And, and so now, you know, there are folks who, and I think this stuff's funny. You know, I'm not super offended by it, right? There are people who are like, well, no, um, they, they put Darwin in legs on the fish. And that's, that's that message, right? That adversarial relationship. Well, if, if I believe in science, then somehow I can't be a person of faith. I saw this go to a new level this week. I saw the next evolution, shall we say, of this, I took my boys to the dentist, and this was on a truck outside the dentist's office. It says sinner, and now the fish has devil horns and a tail. How about that one? That's creative. I mean, you gotta, you got to give it to whoever designed that. So there's this idea that science and faith are against each other, that they're mutually exclusive. And that comes largely from this debate of evolution versus creation. So young earth creationism 
is the belief that the world is about 6,000 years old and that God created the world in six literal days, about 4,000 BC. And what they did was they just kind of counted up the genealogies in the Old Testament and, and came up with the math and, and, and said, well, we believe based on scripture that, that the world is about 6,000 years old. Now, obviously, that's different from the findings of modern science, that the universe is about 13.7 billion years old and that our earth is about 4.3 billion years old. Uh, there's, there's a pretty big difference there between those two beliefs, and that's where that, conf- that conflict largely comes from. And I've told this story before, but it's always relevant. I just I have to share it again. A friend of mine a few years ago went to a big church here in the valley, and he and his wife listened to the pastor, and the pastor was kind of making fun of science. And that evolution is kind of this lie or it's a conspiracy. Or, and, and, and the pastor basically said, if you don't believe that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, you don't believe the Bible. And my friend looked at his wife and he said, we can't go to church here. And they talked about it and they agreed, you know, our kids are going to grow up in a church where they learn that they have to argue with their biology teacher. When evolution comes up in school, you know, scientists are a conspiracy against us and and, 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 you know, science is against the Bible, and, and we can't raise our kids in a church where they're not allowed at least to think, at least to agree to disagree. It wasn't the message, the message they heard wasn't, hey, you know, Christians disagree, here's your opinion, you have your opinion, great. It was, it's this way or the highway. And it's, we can't raise our kids here. We have to have our kids in a place where they can at least think and be given some latitude that they can be thinking Christians who can take both the Bible and science seriously. So Christians are perceived as anti-science largely because of that conflict between young earth creationism and the theory of evolution. About one-third of white evangelicals do accept the findings of modern science. An example is BioLogos, which is an advocacy group started by Francis Collins, who was appointed by George W. Bush as the head of the Human Genome Project. Francis Collins is one of the great scientists of the world, and he, he's, a, he's a Christian who loves God and loves the Bible, and he founded BioLogos. And, and he sat down for an interview on April 1st of this year, and the interview, uh, interviewer cited a finding from the Barna Group that 49% of teenagers in church agree that, uh, uh, that they are taught to be against science in their churches. 49% of teenagers in churches said that they felt like they were taught to be against science. And, and the interviewer said, why is that worrisome to you? And here's his answer. It's a long quote, but you can see it on the screen. He said, this is Francis Collins. He said, if we accept the fact that the church and science are going down different pathways, the quote's on there somewhere, we'll get to it. If we accept the fact that the church and science are going down different pathways, we have to ask, does one have to win and the other have to lose? And is that the future we want? I don't. I don't want a future where science is taking over everything and our entire focus is on technology and secularism and concepts of morality get damaged and concepts of love and beauty and spirituality take a back seat to the latest gadgets. That's a dark kind of image. So he's saying there, I don't want faith to be pushed away to where it's, it's just all science and, and we don't have the strengths of faith. And then he said at the same time, I don't want a future where the fundamentalist views threatened by science decide, are you guys getting sick or queasy at all? It's okay. Sometimes, by the way, I go in a different order. I provide a script and I, go, I mess up the order, so it's totally my fault when these guys struggle with the graphics, so it's my, my responsibility. So if you go forward at the same time, I don't want a future where the fundamentalist views threatened by science 
decide that science isn't to be trusted, right? If, if fundamentalists decide that science isn't to be trusted, who of our young people would want to take part? We will lose young people, lose the amazing opportunities, particularly in medicine, to keep going forward and slip back and, instead of uh, into a kind of denial of what we're able to learn about creation through science. Are you tracking with him and what he's saying? Either one of those options is really grim. The alternative has to be figuring out a way for the scientific and spiritual worldview to enhance each other. That's what BioLogos is all about. So he's saying we don't want faith to go away and it's all secularism and science. We also don't want religious fundamentalism to push away young people who realize, wait, I think, I think the scientists might be onto something here. And maybe we can learn about God's creation through science. I don't want churches to push those young people away from the sciences. And then we're left with this vacuum where people of faith don't want to be involved in science. Both of those are bad. You, you see with what, what he's saying there? Both of those are bad. So he's saying there has to be some kind of alternative. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you probably are wondering what's, what's the big deal. Because Catholics officially have said there, there's no... There's no uh, a problem between faith and science. They see faith and science as compatible with each other. The, the scientist who proposed the theory of the Big Bang, it was a Belgian Catholic priest named George Lemaitre. The guy behind the Big Bang was a Catholic priest. Um, so not all Christians have an adversarial relationship with science, but lots do, and we know that. However, what we're going to see today is that Genesis 1 may not be about faith and science. Yes, it's perceived that there's a conflict between faith and science. That may not be what it's about at all. As a matter of fact, there may be something much deeper going on and that affects you and I on a daily, second-by-second basis um, in ways that we're not even fully aware. One of the things we're going to see in Genesis chapter 1 is how God deals with chaos in our world. Chaos in our world and chaos in our lives, your life as an individual, your family, your work, Right? How, how God deals with, with chaos, chaotic experiences, when things don't work the way we wish they would. When we don't have the kind of relationship we wish we had. When any, even in our own hearts and minds, you know, we have pain from the past and beliefs about the past and lies that we believe about what happened to us. And, and things we can feel chaotic inside. And then we see chaos that happens in our world. You know, the stuff we talked about in the last series with division and, and then chaos of violence and terrorism and attacks and and so there's a lot of chaos in our world. Perhaps Genesis 1 says more about that than it says about science. For example, the kids are outside today, right? All the kids are outside. Uh, I just wanted a little comic relief, and I saw this video, and I'm like, there's no way I'm not playing this video in church. I, did you hear about the Easter bunny who got into a fight last, last week? You're about to. Okay, so let me just in advance, you're welcome. All right, you're welcome for what you're about to see. So there's a guy in an Easter bunny costume. Not working, just wearing the costume. Okay. Uh, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, and he saw a guy attack a woman on the street. There's out on the street. And the Easter Bunny hopped into action. We are learning new details tonight about a man in a bunny costume who went viral for stopping an attack on a woman in Orlando on Easter Sunday. And this bad bunny isn't quite done with his 15 minutes of fame. CBS4's Lauren Pastrana has more on what happened. 
This is Antoine McDonald. No, not the guy on the ground, the guy in the bunny suit, trying to get another man off of a woman in Orlando Sunday night. One, two, three. On Monday, the now viral video had McDonald taking celebrity bows on the sidewalk where it happened. He says while out with friends for some Easter bar hopping in a bunny suit and all, he saw the man and woman fighting. But I got over there, tried to break up the fight. And then with me trying to break up the fight, it led him to get on top of her and hit her. So then I had to uh, try different methods, basically, to break up the fight, which actually worked. I just rushed over there. I didn't even say, hey, look, look at this. No, I just rushed over there. Can I just play that for the rest of the sermon? And that'd be awesome. Just loop it. Uh, just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen right there. The Easter Bunny springing into action. You know, the, sometimes the Easter Bunny has to kick some tail. I thought about that one. How do you, how'd you like that one? No? Okay, that's fine. And uh, so this guy, hey, this guy did a heroic act. He jumped in and he, and, he, and he helped this lady who had been attacked by this man. And that's one way of dealing with chaos in our world. On a much more serious note yesterday, we saw that uh, a guy in San Diego, not far from here, in Poway, a suburb of San Diego, basically the Chandler of San Diego, a guy put a hate-filled manifesto online. He picked up a gun. He walked into a synagogue. And he started shooting. And so there was another synagogue shooting yesterday. And right next door in San Diego, one of the ladies, uh, well, actually, I think the only person who was killed, there was a little girl who was wounded. The rabbi was shot. Um, There was uh, a guy who was shot who they said um, he was grabbing kids and, like, pulling them into another room to get them away from the shooter, and and the shooter shot him. And then there was a lady killed named uh, Lori Gilbert Kay, and um, they said she jumped in front of the rabbi when the guy was trying to, trying to get a shot off. And um, some friends of mine texted me last night, and I guess um, my friend's wife works in an assisted living facility, and the woman killed was the daughter of one of the ladies in that facility, just going to synagogue. Just Jewish people on the last day of Passover trying to go worship, and then something chaotic and evil like that happens. That's the kind of chaos that happens in our world. It's not the only chaos, though, that Genesis 1 speaks to. One of the most common types of chaos it speaks to is the kind that you and I are very familiar with. Because here we're all good Americans. And here's, uh, here's what's true about us as, as good American people. Americans are overworked. We're sleep-deprived. We are more anxious. We're more stressed out. We take less vacation than any other industrialized nation in the world. Did you know that? Do you feel like a pretty good American right now? You're like, yep, that's me. That's my story. Well, it's true. Uh, Last year, Forbes wrote, studies show that Americans work longer hours and have more stress-related illnesses than their European and Japanese counterparts. Instead of constantly trying to motivate everyone to work more and stress out, maybe we need to calm everyone down. It could reduce anxiety, commuter road rage, heart attacks, and maybe even reduce our national carbon footprint. And they talked about this, you know, the sleep deprivation that that uh, many of us feel. And Vox published an article on February 8th of this year, and pardon the language, but it's the title. It said, why, do, why your desk job is so damn exhausting. One of the great mysteries of adult life and psychology. And what they found out was when you're sitting at a desk job, your brain, most of your brain energy is just, it goes towards keeping you alive. Like your vital organ functions, keeping your heart beating, respiratory. Like it, it doesn't, it's not that sitting at a desk makes you tired because of all the brain industry, energy that you're expending. They found that that's not, that's not what's making you tired. 
And so they're looking at what, what is making you tired? And there was this study in the UK of nurses, and that's not really a desk job. I mean, that's a pretty physical, you know, demanding job. And they found that nurses who were least likely to feel fatigued, exhausted from their work, also felt most in control of their work and the most rewarded for it. They felt in control of their work and the most rewarded. And the guy said, because these multiple goals compete with one another for our time, uh, you know, uh, finding mates, sleeping, pursuing our passions in life, hobbies, because these multiple goals compete with one another for our time, we need a mechanism in place that signals, hey, stop doing that thing and do something else. That mechanism, he suggests, could be fatigue. So he says, fatigue, feeling exhausted, tired, if that's how you feel, it's our body's way of saying you need to stop doing this and take care of other things in your life. To take control of your life, do you follow the logic here? They were, the, the people who felt le- least fatigued felt more in control of their work and more rewarded for it. And he says, fatigue is the thing that tells you that you're feeling out of control. And here's my thought. What if we could take control of our work and the fact that we feel so fatigued and overworked without the fatigue? What if we could skip the fatigue part and just take control because of this, of this chaos we feel, even in our own lives so much from being overworked and stressed out over work, what if we could skip the fatigue and just take control in other ways? Maybe Genesis uh, chapter 1 is about that. All right, so let's dive in. Genesis 1 is an ancient story. And Genesis for normal people, Pete Enns and Jared Bias write that Genesis is wisdom literature. It's an ancient story, and it's, it's meant to convey God's wisdom. This is what it looks like to live wisely, to live well. That's what wisdom means, to live well in this world. So Genesis is ancient literature about living well, to live wisely. Now, when we read anything in the Bible, it's tempting to impose our own views onto what we're reading, our own 21st century views. We live post-scientific revolution. We ask questions like, what about evolution? And are miracles possible with the laws of physics? We ask questions like that. The writers of Genesis were not asking questions like that. They didn't live post-scientific revolution the way that we do. They were asking different questions. They have different concerns than we have. And not only that, but Genesis displays literary craftsmanship and artistry. And it's not, it's not something that, that looks like you know, a science textbook when we think about this evolution versus creation debate. So, for example, there's a chart. Here's one pattern in, in uh, Genesis 1. Days 1, 2, and 3, God creates environments. Days 1, 2, and 3. And then in days four, five, and six, he fills those environments. It's called a heliasm in ancient literature, by the way. So God creates, there's this pattern in Genesis of creating the environments and then filling the pattern. And then in day seven, of course, there's a day that doesn't fit the pattern. It's outside of the pattern. It's like this is something new and different and special and set aside now. Day seven is different than the other six days. There's a literary pattern here. Science books aren't designed with literary patterns. That's not how a science book is written. I want to show you um, the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew. And uh, I can't sight read Hebrew, so I had to practice this a lot. But Hebrew is read right to left, so you'd start at the right corner and then you go from right to left. And I'm going to read the first three verses of Genesis 1 in Hebrew. And as I read them, I want you to listen. Listen very closely for alliteration for words that start with the same letter. 
Listen very closely for rhyme, words that rhyme with each other, all right? And by the way, doesn't this, this just kind of show, this, we're stepping into a foreign world here, aren't we? When, when we see this writing that looks like this, this isn't, this isn't written in Chandler in 2019. We're stepping into something different here. Here's Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 through 3 in Hebrew. Bereshith bara Elohim, et hashamayim, Ve'et ha'aretz, va'ha'aretz, hayata tohu va'bohu, vekoshek alpene, tehom vruak Elohim, mereshefet alpene hamayim, vayomer Elohim, yehi or va'yehi or. Did you hear some alliteration? Did you? You're a very nice person. I'm going to have you around. She's been paid prior to the service. Thank you. Did you hear alliteration? Did you hear some rhyme? How about uh, tohu vabohu? Did you hear that? Did you hear that rhyme in there? It doesn't really sound like a science book, does it? Science books aren't written with alliteration and rhyme. Like science books aren't rap songs, right? It's, it's the evolution revolution. What? Like that's not, a, that's not how science textbooks read. This is something else. This is something different than what we expect a science book uh, to read. And so, uh, tohu vabohu is a phrase that we might translate in English wild and waste, or desert wilderness, or chaos. And it's this idea that God encountered in, in Genesis 1 this primordial chaos where it's just water. And it says the, the, a wind of God or the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So, God encounters this chaotic water. In the ancient uh, Middle East, the sea was seen as a symbol of chaos. They, they were desert people. And, and, and the sea was frightening to the people who wrote the Bible. And so God encounters this chaos. Picture just waves crashing into each other. And, and, uh, and God encounters this chaos and it's tohu vabohu. Wild and formless and void. And it's a wasteland of, of just water crashing. And then God does something about that. Also, and this might be new to some folks, but it appears that there are actually two creation accounts in Genesis. The first one starts here and then it ends in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. And then in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 it says this is the account of how God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have the Adam and Eve story that we're going to talk about next week. And so, and wait, wait, that might be news to some folks. But it appears that there are two creation accounts. One clue to that, I mean other than the very different setting of this cosmic chapter 1 and in, in, in the garden in chapter 2, there's a different name for God. In chapter 1, we have God called Elohim, which is God. We translate God in English. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, when it says this is the account of the, the creation, we, we have a new name for God. In your English Bible, it says Lord God. In, in Hebrew, it's Adonai Elohim. Elohim Adonai. It's Lord God. There's a new name for God. And then as you progress through Genesis, you see there are passages that just have God, and then there are passages that, that have Lord God. And they just kind of weave in and out from each other. They're like, interesting. It appears that there is more than one tradition that has been compiled here and edited here. That the author or authors of Genesis have taken, here's what we think is important. And we've, we've done a mashup. We've done a compilation of, of, of our traditions that we believe is important about God. And we're not trying to harmonize them. We're not trying to act like it's science or a constitution or a thesis paper. We're putting these traditions together. We're not trying to make all the names for God match even. 
We're just putting these traditions together and preserving what is important. And so it's different from a science book. It doesn't really appear to be addressing the questions we have about evolution and, and how, did, how did humans originate. And it doesn't seem to really be working on it. So what is it communicating? Well, God encounters chaos. Um, we can see that this is not the only literature in the ancient world that dealt with this theme of chaos. And we know that the setting of Genesis is in what was Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. We know that because uh, Genesis 2 tells us that the Garden of Eden was near the Tigris and Euphrates River. That's in Iraq. We know where that is, ancient Babylon. That seems to be the setting. There's some ancient Babylonian literature, a creation account called the Enuma Elish. And in that, the gods, or the god Marduk, encounters chaos. And what Marduk does with the chaos is Marduk gets into a war with another god named Tiamat. And Marduk takes a sword and cuts Tiamat in half. And half of Tiamat becomes the water above the dome, and half of Tiamat becomes the water under the earth. And so you have this, this world where there's a lot of water above and a lot of water below, and uh, that's, that's how the world was created. And humans are really seen as the gophers of the gods, like the intern who just gets the coffee. That's, that's the role of humans in the Enuma Elish. The creation is violent. The gods are annoyed with humans. There's like slashing and dashing, you know, right? And, 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 and war and violence, and that's how the creation comes into being. That's not what happens here. I want to show you the ancient world and how the Babylonians viewed it and what we see from Genesis well in the scripture that Susie read. You remember Susie reading that God separated the waters, right? You guys remember that? The chaotic waters, God separated them and he made a dome or a vault over the earth and the water above the earth went over that dome and, and then there was water below the earth. These folks didn't have weather satellites. They didn't have uh, telescopes, not the Hubble telescope kind. And this seems to be their view of the world. Water above the earth, water below the earth. But notice the difference in how God deals with the chaos. God's not violently you know, slicing up sea monsters to deal with the chaos. God just speaks. God speaks the word. Let there be light. And there's light. And God said, and now we have this beautiful world. God speaks it into existence. There's not a war. There's not violence. God doesn't meet chaos with chaos. God speaks peacefully. And the chaos is undone. And he orders creation. And he brings something good and beautiful out of, this, out of this chaos. It's a much different picture than what we get from the Babylonian literature. This doesn't really look like a science textbook, does it? This isn't our view of the world. But it does present a much different view than the Babylonians. About who God is. And then also about who we are in Genesis 1.27. Susie read. God says, let us create humankind on our image and our likeness. And so God creates humans uh, to be something like God in our image and our likeness. What does that mean? Well, we know what it means in the ancient world because there are, other, there are other types of literature that mention that. In the ancient world, it was believed that kings and queens had the image of God. That kings and queens bore the image of the gods. And that the kings and queens ruled as God's representatives or as the God's representatives in the world. And what um, this amazing, shocking thing that Genesis 1.27 is saying, that's true not just of kings and queens. That's true of every single human being 
that God has created. It's true of you. That you were created in God's image. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't, how much, it doesn't matter how much, how much fame you have or how important other people think you are or what you heard as a kid or the messages that you've received in school or at work. Or it, none of that matters. What matters is that you were created in the image and likeness of God. And we don't have kings and queens in America, so you might say what, what Genesis 1.27 means is that God has created you as his senior vice presidents in this world. If God is the CEO, you're the SVP. And we all together are senior vice presidents in this world, given dignity and worth and tasked with, create, with caring for this creation, caring for this work that God has done, caring for this planet, caring for the universe. And, and so what God does is he, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to deal with the chaos with war and violence, and then the humans are kind of annoying, so they're just going to go get my coffee for me. God speaks peace into the chaos. God brings good and order out of the chaos. And then God says, I've created you to experience my peace and my goodness and my beauty and to take care of my creation. And you have dignity. It doesn't matter how you feel about yourself. God says you have dignity. And here's what else it means. Because God creates in six days and then what's he do on the seventh day? God takes a personal day. God God calls one in. Not coming in. I don't think I'm going to work today. You ever seen, anybody seen Office Space a few years ago? They like smashed the computer printer to gangster music and these guys are just like sick of their jobs and, and Peter's like, I, you know, I don't think I'm coming in today. And Lumberg with the coffee is like, yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturdays. And I don't think I'm coming into work today. He just has this epiphany where he, he's just tired of it. And so on day seven, God takes a, God takes a break. He takes a, a day of rest and, of course, it's called the Sabbath day. Sabbath, the literal meaning of the word Sabbath, means stop. It means cease. Cease working. Stop working. Stop doing all the things that make you feel overworked and fatigued and, and run down. Stop all those things. And I want you to take a vacation day. So Genesis 1, apparently, out of this six days and then God resting and creating humans in his dignity and his likeness and, 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 and speaking peace to the chaos and bringing good and order out of the chaos, God says, you need a vacation every single week to remind you that you are my representatives and you have dignity in this world and you are not what you do. You are not a machine. You're not somebody who has to go, 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 go all the time. And it's always overtime and overtime and overtime and work, 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 work. And, and you feel run down and depleted and, and, and like you just don't have any energy for the things that really matter in life. God says, I have more for you than that. You can be free from feeling like a slave to working all the time and all the things that you just have to do all the time. Here's what I'm going to do to set you free. I want you to take a vacation every week. And, and in that vacation, remind yourself about what's important. So... The, our Jewish friends, and I have some great Jewish friends here in the valley who have invited Hannah and I up to uh, their house for, for uh, Sabbath dinner. Um, on Friday nights when their Sabbath starts, they have a big family dinner. And they get together and they just share stories about how they're doing. How you doing tonight? How was your week? And, and they say some prayers together and they have a great time. It's not drudgery. And then maybe they go to synagogue on Saturday like these folks in San Diego did. And, and they go just to honor God and, and learn and grow as people. And it's the reason you're here today on the Christian Sabbath, the day that the Lord rose on Sundays. You come and you worship to grow and bring your kids and have a good time and 
God says, this is to remind you that you are not your work and you're not what your boss says you are, whether that's good or bad. And that's not about the, you know, the watch you're going to get when you retire someday and feeling exhausted and depleted all the time. You are worth more than that. You were created in my image and my likeness. You are my senior vice presidents in this world. And I've created the world as good and ordered and peaceful, and I want you to experience that in your life. I want you to be set free from this idea that you just have to work, 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 and go, go, go all the time. It appears that's, that's the big meaning of Genesis chapter 1. It's not really about faith and science. It's about who God is and who you are and that what life is all about and that you can be set free from the way of the world that we see so often. So in January 2012, I got to go to uh, Israel for a nine-day trip. It was an amazing opportunity. My father-in-law organized this trip, and, and I got to go for free, and it was, just, it was incredible. And we spent the Sabbath in Jerusalem. And we had this tour bus, and, um, and uh, we were driving, uh, you know, driving through the streets of Jerusalem on the way to our hotel. And the guy gets on, and he says, oh, it's almost sundown which is the start of the Sabbath on Friday nights, almost sundown, almost the Sabbath. And he's like, I'm going to put on a little Sabbath music for y'all. And, uh, and the, yes, the Israeli guy was like, y'all. Like, I think he's, he knew he was talking to Americans. So it's like, Americans say y'all. So I'm going to say y'all. I'm going to put on some Sabbath music for you, y'all. And now here's what I expected. See, growing up, I, I'm old enough to remember blue laws in Ohio. Like, you couldn't buy beer on Sundays, right? So what, what better way to make the Sabbath drudgery? You can't buy beer, Right? And it was just this idea that the Sabbath is just this, it's like a funeral dirge. You have obligations and duties and it's, it's another weight, weight you have to carry in life. That's what the Sabbath felt like to me growing up. Well, I got to go do stuff for the Sabbath and I can't do fun stuff on the Sabbath. And I got a much different idea of the Sabbath in Jerusalem. So the guy's like, I'm going to put on some Sabbath music for y'all. And, uh, and he turns on the radio and it's dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Start spreading the news. Dun, dun. You can tell why I don't sing and these guys do a great job up here. It's, it's Sinatra. Dun, 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 dun. And he, he starts playing Rat Pack music. I'm like, well, that's not like contemporary Christian music. That's not out of the hymn book somewhere. And, and he explained, now on the Sabbath, here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to go home. My son's coming over with his wife and kids and I'm going to light some candles kick back. We're going to say some prayers together out of a little prayer book. We're going to have this awesome dinner, talk about our week, and just unwind. And he's like, you know what I'm doing tomorrow? Nothing. Just, just hang out with my family, people I love, think about what really matters in life. Rob Bell is a famous author. He says, we take a Sabbath because there's always more work to do. Some of us, I could never take a day off. I've got so much to do. His point is, that's always the case. There's always more work. There's always more work waiting on you after your vacation, right? So why do we take a day off? We take a day off because there's always more work to do. Quickly, we, we read the Noah uh, account. What happens in the flood? When that, remember that picture of the water above the earth and the water below the earth? The water comes crashing in. And in Genesis 6, it says that the water covered the highest mountain, well, we know now that would be Mount Everest. It's about 29,000 feet high. If that were the case, then that, that means that there, that would require three times as much water on the earth as there currently is. And if that's, if that's the case, we don't know where that water went. We don't know where that flood water went, right? 
it doesn't really fit, um, if you're asking scientific questions, it doesn't fit a modern science view. But if your view of the world is there's a lot of water above it and a lot of water below it, it says the windows of heaven were open and the fountains of the deep. Well, then that water comes crashing in. Remember, what's the water a symbol of? Chaos. The, the Noah and the flood account is this uh, account of what happens when humans become increasingly chaotic and start undoing God's good work of creation. It says God was grieved because of the violence in the earth. And what happens? The chaos, the floodwaters of chaos come crashing back in. And God says, I'm going to start over again. We can make decisions in life that allow the, the, the chaotic floodwaters to come crashing back in. Where maybe we start with good intentions. Hey, I need a day off. I want to honor God. I want to take my kids to church. I want to think about what really matters. I want to, I want to remember I'm not a human doing. I'm a human being. I'm not a machine. There's more, than, there's more to me than just producing and being overworked and fatigued. And we can start right, but all of a sudden we let those, those lies back in and that busyness creep back in and that chaos comes pouring back in into our lives again. You can believe about science whatever you want. I mean, when it comes to the Bible and science, there's a place for you here. If, you, if you're a young earth creationist, hey, welcome home. If you believe the earth is 6,000 years old, welcome home. You've got a place in this church. If you accept the findings of modern science, then welcome, welcome home. You've got a place in this church. I would say more importantly, and what we're going to see next week with Adam and Eve and the rest of this Genesis series and what we're going to talk about in the Connect group is that Genesis really is God's message to you about who God is and who you are. And that there's more to life than this, this chaotic experience of violence and political divisiveness and people walking into synagogues with guns and, and not taking any vacation and, and feeling like we're just stressed out and fatigued all the time. There's more to life, right? God creates good and order out of the chaos.